yes, I do heartily repent. I repent I had not done more mischief, and that we did not cut the throats of them that took us. And I am extremely sorry that you aren't hanged as well as we. This is a quote from an anonymous pirate right before he was hanged. Taken from Captain Charles Johnson's A General History of the Pirates, first published in 1724. Piracy is probably as old as the idea of oceanic trade itself. But exactly who is a pirate? The pirate is not always the swashbuckling man with an eye patch, a parrot on his shoulder, using colourful language as popular literature tells us. Although I'm somewhat sure that on the high seas, one could not do without colourful language. A pirate is someone who robs or commits illegal acts of violence on the seas or within towns close to the sea. They are thieves and marauders, often resorting to violence to claim wealth carried by merchant vessels without the consent of a state or state-like authority. They can act in groups and often had a flotilla of sailing armies with them. Simply put, a pirate is someone who lives above the law. But rather than defining the pirates as a lawless sea robber, how about we examine piracy as a political tool? That is, if someone is designated as a pirate, then who gets to call him one? And whose law is it that a so-called pirate is breaking? the Masala History Podcast and I am Deepthi Murali and it is my pleasure to welcome you to our first episode back after a very long sabbatical. This episode is part one of our two-part series on the piratic adventurers of the Indian coast. In this episode, we will encounter some of the early European pirates who plied the waters of the Indian Ocean and the Arabian and Red Seas, and we will also consider why Indian waters were such an attractive space for these pirates. I want to start by saying that at least some of the early European raiders in the Indian Ocean certainly did not start out as pirates. For example, the captain of the vessel Seahorse was sent to the Red Sea under royal command to capture Spanish ships when England was battling Spain for supremacy of the Americas. In this case, he was instructed to attack and pillage the opposing nation's vessels. In contrast, the two ships Samaritan and Roebuck cruising the Red Sea in 1635 were attacking not just Spanish but even Mughal ships. 
they were sent under the patronage of two London merchants and their silent partner, who turned out to be Endymion Porter, who was a gentleman of the king's bedchamber. The captain of Roebuck decided to attack any ship in his path, including Indian ships, even though Britain was not at war with the Mughals or any other Indian powers, and no one had given the, this captain permission to attack these ships. It seems like the Indian Ocean had a talent to make ordinary sailors into pirates as soon as they sailed the Bend of Cape of Good Hope. The Red Sea and the Arabian Sea were attractive to looters because all trade to the Red Sea from India was paid with gold and silver, so ships returning to India were treasure chests waiting to be raided. A lot of Europeans, British, Dutch, French, Portuguese and others were only too keen to try their luck in the Indian Ocean because of the temptation offered by these riches. But it was not only Europeans who were engaged in piracy. European records from the 17th and 18th century arrive with descriptions of Indian and Arab pirates, also called rovers, who made the waters of western Indian Ocean, especially close to the coast, dangerous places. But let's make something clear at the onset. The so-called Indian pirates, which we will discuss in the next episode, were somewhat different from the European pirates. Because in many cases, if you look through historical records of events, you would notice that most groups that the Europeans termed as Indian pirates were not really pirates at all in the conventional sense of the word. Here, the most important point is that the pirate is supposed to be someone who lives outside the law. But whose law? In an era before the United Nations and international water laws and treaties, who decided the rules of trade and combat, especially on the seas? The answer is everyone and no one. Each nation-state, empire or kingdom worked within their own set of laws that often were in direct opposition of each other. In the 17th century, when the British were yet to colonize and reign supreme in South Asia, there were many different actors making and enacting laws in the Indian seas. For example, the Portuguese in the 16th century came up with the Cartes, a trade license or pass issued by them to ships flying in the Indian Ocean. The Cartes system and the violence inflicted by the Portuguese on those who did not adhere to the system brought an end to the traditional cross-Asiatic trade prevalent in the Indian seas for centuries up until then. When the Portuguese power weakened in the Indian Ocean subsequently, the Dutch and then the British issued their own passes to merchant ships that allowed these ships to pass unmolested through the Indian Ocean and neighboring seas. But which of these passes were valid at any given time depended on a number of factors, from the ability of a trading company to exhibit their naval force to what wars were being fought in Europe. To complicate the system further, in the late 17th century, the new Maratha Empire, 
in India, following its inception under the great warrior king Shivaji in 1679, also began to heavily invest in coastal trade. And, if the British are to be believed, the Marathas invested greatly in piratic trade as well. However, the so-called piracy of the Marathas or of any other Indian actors in the Arabian Sea, such as the Siddhis of Janjira or the Kolis of Sultanpur, must be properly situated within the politics of the western coast of India at this time. Because the Europeans in India, including the British, the French, the Dutch and the Portuguese, classified Indian men of sea as pirates when it suited them. So, for example, the Siddhis of Janjira, who were constantly referred to as piratic nuisance in the mid to late 17th century by the British and the Portuguese, were not in fact marauders, but a small dynastic seafaring family unit authorized in the late 17th century to ply the seas and tax ships by the Mughal emperor. In her book, Shanti Sadiq Ali informs us that in 1677, Emperor Aurangzeb provided the Siddhis with men, provisions and four ships, including two men-of-war battleships, commanded by Siddhi Qasim and Siddhi Sambal. Before Mughal patronage, Siddhis may have migrated to the region of Murud in present-day western Maharashtra as army generals sent in the 15th century from Ahmadnagar Sultanate to the Konkan coast. In this history, it appears that the Siddhis were not pirates at all, but distinguished generals with a political lineage on the subcontinent. However, contemporaneous British records still continued to call them Pirates. So the question of who is a pirate is really a question of which kingdom's power was greatest at sea and who had the means to exert their nation's will often far away from home. The so-called Indian pirates are a topic of interest in the next episode, particularly the fierce Maharashtrian Angres. But in order to understand the impact and significance of Indian quote-unquote piracy, it is first important to contextualize piracy at large in the Indian Ocean in the 17th century that was more famously carried out by those I call global pirates, men, largely European, who sail the seas of the world from the Americas to the Indian Ocean islands looking for merchant ships to pillage. And these are our heroes for this episode. The first European pirate in the Indian Ocean is thought to be Vincente Sodre, a Portuguese sailor accompanying Vasco da Gama in his second voyage to India in 1502. Just like many future pirates, Sodre likely deserted his crew sometime after the Portuguese fleet rounded the Cape of Good Hope in mid-June of that year. Like Sodre, most European pirates started out with legitimate papers as part of company trade or as crew commissioned by private European merchants. Often, they ended up in the Indian Ocean even when their papers were cleared for other parts of the world. John Hand, for example, was given papers to take his vessel from Bristol 
to Lisbon and from there on to Brazil. He set sail for Madeira, but then he gathered his crew at Madeira and announced that there had been a change of plans and that they were heading to India. Hand was happy to just trade in the Indian Ocean, but would turn into a pirate if other merchants refused to sell him their wares at the price he demanded. Somewhat living up to the popular representations of pirates, Hand was quick to temper and his end came rather swiftly when he went ashore in Sumatra, infuriated that the Sumatrans had refused to trade with him. He set sail to the shore, muttering that he was going to teach the, quote, black dogs, unquote, a lesson. Unfortunately for him, and fortunately for the Sumatrans, the pistol in his pocket went off and killed him. The British East India Company, struggling to get its foothold on the Indian subcontinent, was troubled in more ways than one by these European and particularly British and British-American pirates. On the one hand, the East India Company ships were raided with no mercy by many of these European pirates. And on the other hand, when British pirates captured an Indian ship, the merchants of the East India Company were the ones that were left on the mainland to face the wrath of the Indian potentates, especially of the powerful Mughals. India had a long-standing trade with the Arabian Peninsula. In the winter, ships from the western coast would head to the Red Sea with traders and pilgrims to Mecca. When monsoon arrived a few months later, they would gather their profits from Mocha and Jeddah and return to their home ports. This was a great time for pirates to attack and seize as much treasure as they could. In 1686, two ships flying under the English flag captured vessels worth 600,000 rupees in the Red Sea. These captured ships were from Surat, the main trading port under the Mughals, in the region of Gujarat, and it landed the East India Company officials there in a great deal of trouble. In August 1691, English pirates seized the vessel of Abdul Ghafur, one of the most wealthy merchants of Surat and a very powerful man. Gafu's ship was taken at the mouth of the Surat River and contained 9 lakhs or 900,000 rupees on board. This was a particularly offensive undertaking which led the governor of Surat to place guards outside the British factory there and an embargo was placed on English traders. The European pirates went after ships of other European nations as well. In the same year, the British East India Company's ship Caesar, bound for Bombay, was chased on the coast of Gambia in East Africa by five French pirate ships. By 1689, the factory officials at Fort St. George in Madras were writing that the seas were, quote, pestered with pirates, end quote. Piracy was attractive simply because it was more lucrative than any other career on the seas. Many times, the British East India Company saw their employees turn sympathizers, which made it even harder for them to crack down on piracy. 
Some company men even joined the pirates and cruised the seas looking for plunder, and many of them would eventually be arrested, of course. The most famous of these English pirates in the Indian Ocean was perhaps Henry Every, or his real name may have been Henry Bridgman. He was also more popularly known as John Avery. Avery started out in the Royal Navy before he joined the Merchant Marine, working on ships that sailed to the West Indies. But by 1695, Avery had gone full pirate and had rounded the Cape and was plying in the waters of the Western Indian Ocean. Avery was very particular not to attack English or Dutch ships. Remember, the English and the Dutch are on the same team at this time because of King William III. And Avery even warned English and Dutch captains of other pirates that may have been waiting around to attack. There is now 160-odd French armed men now at Mohila who waits for the opportunity of getting any ship. Take care yourselves. Avery left this note in February 1695 as a warning to those merchant captains that were on their way to Bombay from the coast of Africa. European pirates, by and large, settled in the island of Madagascar off the east coast of Africa. In the 17th century, so many pirate settlements popped up on this island that only those who traded with pirates could approach this region. A few pirates fashioned themselves as minor kings within their settlements, building forts and setting up church and parliament. Two, an English pirate who teamed up with a French pirate, founded a settlement called Libertatia in Madagascar, where slavery was prohibited and a conservator appointed to make laws. When Libertatia was destroyed by local tribes, however, two took off for the Americas and lived in Rhode Island for a while before returning to piracy in the Red Sea. Madagascar was such an ideal location for pirates because they could easily sail as far as the Sumatran Islands from there, as well as to the Red Sea, the Gulf of Oman, that is the Persian Gulf, and the western coast of India. But back to Avery's exploits in the Indian Ocean. In a single year, Avery captured three English ships of American origin, he burned down a town on the Somali coast, and he captured one of Abdul Ghaffur's ships named Fateh Mahmood. But his single biggest capture was the Mughal emperor's, the Mughal emperor's, Ganji Savai, a ship that was armed to the teeth, carrying 80 guns and 400 matchlocks. It also contained profits from its Red Sea trade worth 53 lakh rupees. To give you some idea of how much that is, 53 lakh rupees, which was about 534,000 pounds at that time, could get you 100,000 Arabian horses or pay for the labor of a skilled tradesman for almost 6 million days in England. It was a, a lot of money. The Ganji Savai was so well-armed that it did not have a convoy accompanying it. Every bombarded it from the broadside, which damaged the Mughal ship's mast badly. The captain, Ibrahim Khan, 
capitulated without much resistance, every crew easily boarded the ship and plundered it for a week. They may have even molested the crew, including the women on board, but once all the loot that could be taken was taken, they left the ship to limp back to Surat. Henry Every may have been active in the Indian Ocean only for a mere six months. In 1695, he is said to have sailed to the Bahamas, where he presented the governor of Providence with gold for his and his crew's safety. According to Johnson's general history of the pirates, Every returned to England at some point where a prize on his head was advertised. In 1696, some of his crew was most definitely found and sentenced to death. Johnson writes that Every then fled to Ireland, where he died in poverty, having been cheated by a merchant of all his wealth. However, this may not have been accurate, since he was never found and the prize on his head never claimed. So it is very likely that Every lived out his life comfortably in an assumed name somewhere in Ireland or in the Americas, leaving the English in India to face the consequences of his actions. For following Every's plunder of the ship Ganji Savai, almost every official of the East India Company in Surat and Bombay were imprisoned by the Mughals for 11 months. They were let go only after the British, the Dutch and the French agreed to send out their ships to patrol the seas and capture these pirates, while the British were also asked to pay very hefty fines. The trouble was, Every became a folk hero and word of his bounty spread, leading many more privateers and pirates to flock to the Indian Ocean. John Bidulph in his book remarks that, quote, Every restless spirit was intent on seeking his fortune in this new El Dorado, end quote. William Kidd, for example, a seaman deputed to privateer on the coast of the Americas, sailed instead to the Indian Ocean where he captured the Kedda Merchant, a ship belonging to Armenian merchants sailing in from Bengal to Surat. He then abandoned his own galley, the Adventure, for the Kedda Merchant, which he then sailed back to Boston. Captain Kidd became famous for his attempted piracy and fateful end when in 1701 he was hanged along with six of his crew, mostly to set an example for other pirates. Kidd was perhaps not quite a pirate, for his commission was initially sanctioned with the seal of the crown. He was also not particularly successful, considering that he plundered only a few vessels compared to someone like every or two, and most of what he had in his possession ended up being merchandise. Nonetheless, after his hanging, the Act of Parliament in 1705 authorized the Crown to dispose Kidd's wealth in a prudent manner, and £6,472 of Kidd's gains were donated to the expenses of Greenwich Hospital, still standing in England. But piracy did not end in the Indian Ocean even after these measures. At the turn of the 18th century, trade was nearly impossible on India's west coast due to these pirates. 
In the Gulf of Cambay, close to Surat, not one but three pirate ships from New York roamed about capturing ships worth 4 lakh rupees. Adding to these troubles for the East India Company was the constant desertion of the company's sailors, some of whom mutinied or stole company ships to carry on piratic adventures. It was not only the Mughals and the Surat merchants who were angered by European pirates. In 1697, Arabs from the Musket region in the Persian Gulf captured London, a ship belonging to a private British merchant. They then forced the crew of London to fight on their behalf against the Portuguese. For Arab and Indian merchants, it was difficult to distinguish between private European merchants and pirates because all these ships sailed under European flags and it was not immediately clear who was a privateer and who was a pirate. The problem of rampant piracy was one that could not be resolved without active policing in the Indian Ocean. And that task obviously fell upon the European trading companies who, since the advent of the Portuguese in the 16th century, had taken over large portions of oceanic trade, including protection under their passports. They had, for more than a century, raided ships that did not carry such passes. But, in the 17th century, companies themselves did not have the means required to police the vastness of the Indian Ocean and their home governments also could not help, for England and France and most of Europe thereby were at war with one another. A large-scale crackdown of pirates, however, was on the cards. When the Nine Years' War, often thought of as the First Global War, ended in Europe, and in the Atlantic and Indian seas in 1697, the British Royal Navy began sending out warships that were called Men of War to the Indian Ocean to help the East India Company save face in Asia and carry on their trading enterprise. Along with this, in 1701, King William III passed a new act that allowed British agents in other parts of the world to undertake trials by forming a court of seven persons. Under this act, which was carried out till 1719, pirates could now be tried in faraway places like India or the Caribbean without having to get them back physically to England to stand trial. These interventions in early 18th century did much to check European piracy in the Indian Ocean. The Europeans were not the only pirates in the Indian seas. 200 years before Vasco da Gama, Marco Polo had written home to Europe about the famous Malabar pirates. He wrote, And you must know that from this kingdom in Malabar and from an other called Gujarat, there go forth every year more than a hundred corsair vessels and crews. These pirates take with them their wives and children and stay out the whole summer. Their method is to join in fleets of 20 or 30 of these pirate vessels together and they form what they call a sea cordon. This is, they drop off 
till there is an interval of five or six miles between ship and ship so that they can cover something like a hundred miles of sea and no merchant ship can escape them. For when any one corsair sights a vessel, a signal is made by fire or smoke and the whole of them make for this and seize the merchants and plunder them. After they have plundered, they let them go, saying, Go along with you and get more gain, and that may hap fall to us also. This passage is taken from Henry Yule's translation of the book of Marco Polo. But Indian pirates, as I mentioned in the beginning of this episode, were somewhat different from European pirates. For one, they were sometimes not pirates at all, like the Siddhis of Janjira, who were in the 17th century the de facto Mughal navy. They were taxing and penalizing ships in the name of the Mughal state. There were also other groups that operated in the Indian seas that fit the description of piratic adventurers, such as the Kolis of Gujarat, working from their stronghold in Sultanpur at the mouth of the Kurala River. The Kolis used their little vessels to raid and ransack ships, both Indian and European, especially in the Gulf of Cambay and the harbour of Bombay, but they were likely aided and financed by wealthy merchants in Surat and other places, and a portion of their raided wealth went to these merchants. There were also others with piratic tendencies, like the Malabaris, the Sanganyas of Bait, Warrels of Diu, in addition to Arab pirates from the Musket region. Piracy is ultimately an issue of taxation and naval power in the Indian Ocean of the 16th through 18th centuries. The study of the rise and fall of piracy in the Indian Ocean is a study also of the rise of British power in South Asia. In the next episode, I will talk in detail about a family whom the British categorized as a pirate dynasty, namely the Maratha Angres. Of course, as it usually is with colonial British depictions of Indians, the Angre legacy is not a simple matter of piracy. The rise and fall of the Angre is tied to the history of the Maratha Empire itself. Were the Angres really pirates or were they admirals of the Maratha naval fleet? Were they, as national historians claim, some of India's first freedom fighters? Or were they secretly plotting to bring down the Peshwa reign and the Maratha empire itself? In part two of this two-part series on piratic adventurers of the Indian coast, we will dive into the lives of Kanoji Angre, the heroic naval commander, and his sons, who ruled the Arabian Sea for close to 50 years and bedeviled the British, the Dutch, and the Portuguese. European piracy did not completely end with King William's Parliamentary Act of 1705. In 1720, for example, a master pirate named George Taylor roamed the Indian seas, plundering British, Portuguese and Indian ships alike. In 1721, his flotilla of 11 ships even seized the Viceroy of Goa. Piracy eventually died out in the 19th century as Britain strengthened its hold on South Asia and Africa. From the early 19th century, hardly any European pirate is heard of, and the Indian groups engaged in naval warfare and 
small-scale piracy are almost completely exterminated. Historian Simon Layton remarks that the suppression of piracy in the Indian Ocean parallels the territorial expansion of the British East India Company on the Indian subcontinent. The idea of piracy itself, he writes, quote, reveals a particular understanding of political and economical sovereignty that shaped the British imperial project across Asia in the early 19th century, end quote. Ultimately, the pirates were a threat not only to potential profits gained from the Indian Ocean trade and taxation of that trade for the British East India Company, but it was a political hurdle that had to be removed so that commerce and control of maritime space could become the backbone of their colonial imperial system in South Asia. If you're interested in learning more about piracy in India, head over to our website www.masalahistory.com where we have show notes including further readings and many images. If you have questions for us, please leave us a comment on the website or on our social media pages. We would love to hear from you. And if you like this episode, please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, and wherever else you can find podcasts, I guess, because we have part two of Piracy on Indian Ocean coming up in three weeks. Masala History Podcast is produced by Deepti Murali and Manami Guha. We are both historians who are deeply interested in talking about all things South Asia. Thanks for listening and see you in three weeks with the exploits of Kanoji Angre. Masala History